Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm happy to welcome Adam Tooze, an economic historian at Columbia University, whose new book is called Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Have Changed the World. Now, Adam, contrary slightly to your subtitle, your argument, if I represent it rightly, is that actually it hasn't been a series of separate financial crises, but that the 2008 catastrophe in starting in the States and the subsequent sovereign debt crisis in Europe are part of the same single big crisis. And yikes, it's still going on. So can you explain in simple terms how, what on the face of it looks odd, a crisis for lenders on one side of the Atlantic turns into a crisis for borrowers on the other? Yeah, so there are two channels. On the one hand, the private, the crisis of private credit, which is not just in the States, but in Ireland and Spain as well, um, involves European banks on an absolutely enormous scale. So you have a deep fragility in the European economy uh, that emerges in 2007 already, in August 2007. It's a European bank, Paribas, which is the first to shut down three American real estate funds and to really begin to trigger the big panic. Various low-rent American lenders had failed before that, but Paribas' announcement is the really critical event in, in August 2007. And that crisis eats away at the fabric of the European banking system progressively. And unlike in America, there is not a comprehensive recapitalization of Europe's banks. There is a sort of patchwork of deals. That's the one thing that's going on on the one hand, the kind of basso continuo, if you like, the baseline of the, of the crisis. And then you get all these other eddies and ripples that spiral out from that main show, which hit all sorts of economies around the world. Thailand, Indonesia, China, which is in no way related to subprime, but is a big exporter finds its global markets collapsing. And amongst that group, as it were, secondary casualties, collateral damage of the financial crisis, is Greece. Now, and Greece is you know, an odd case in the sense that banks have nothing to do with subprime, but it's a big tourist destination. Uh, and as global demand falls and discretionary expenditure falls, the Greek economy begins to tumble. And the Greek government does what, at that moment, every government was enjoined to do, namely to compensate for falling private demand by public demand. Except the problem with Greece is that it starts at the beginning of the crisis with a dangerous level of public debt, even before the crisis began. It hasn't got that much room to manoeuvre. And it doesn't have that much room to manoeuvre. It's very important to add, however, that that had been the condition of Greece ever since the late 1990s. Uh, The story that forming the Eurozone and the lack of fiscal discipline in the Eurozone induced a huge borrowing glut by European sovereigns is simply not supported by the evidence. It's not true across the Eurozone as a whole. The famous debt-to-GDP ratio, in fact, goes down between the formation of the euro and 2008. But Greece is already, at the beginning of the formation of the euro, an incredibly fragile economy. It's just about coping until 2008, and then it really tips over the edge into 2009. And so a crisis which was driven by the implosion of this credit bubble, a private credit bubble on both sides of the Atlantic, in Spain and Ireland, in the United States, in the UK to a certain degree extent as well, that then turns into an aggregate demand crisis, a typical depression, a typical recession, then hits the most fragile of the public sector budgets, the Greek, and that then from 2009 onwards really to an really perverse development which requires a political explanation this tiny economy of Greece with a GDP one one, one and a half to two percent of Eurozone GDP becomes the centre of this epic crisis of governance and when you talk about the 
differing responses. I mean, you said the sort of twin track here. Um, we all got very exercised, and everyone's talking about moral hazard and so on, by the idea that, you know, all, I mean, it's been said again and again and again that the losses were socialised and that the profits privatised mm. and that, you know, as you say, the Fed poured trillions of dollars in to prop up, as you put mm. it, you know, a kind of tiny handful of enormous financial mm. institutions that become global. And you sort of say, well, that was, you know, profoundly immoral, but actually it worked. Mm. Whereas with the European response, mm. you saw it being actually much more ideological mm. and, I mean, arguably maybe no more moral, but, you know, that it was, a, it was an inadequate response because it wasn't pragmatic. Yes, I think that's, I mean first brush I think that's 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 fair this is the dilemma that we face that a you know a well-organized businessman's cabal which would be a crude way of describing but not inaccurate way of describing American government in 2008 uh, turns out to be a pretty effective crisis management mechanism it of course ensures that the crisis management will be unequal in its effect it's quite likely to produce a political backlash in due course from both left and right arguably um, but certainly it gets the job done uh, and it enables a kind of concerted recapitalization of American finance um, in the way that does not happen in Europe. And it doesn't, in, this is not initially a Eurozone problem. None of the European states uh, can do this, uh, with one significant exception. Uh, but the British fail and the Germans fail because we have. Sorry, big, the significant exception. is France. And I'll wind up to that in just a second. Right. But the, the Germans and the British are typical because they have a mixture of good banks and bad banks and some are failing and some are just have about just about have their heads above water and the ones who have their heads just above water pride themselves in evading cooperation in the bailout and those will be Barclays and HSBC here and Deutsche Bank in Germany so they escape the capitalist collective action that will be necessary to produce a collective and solution and the sole exception and the analogue to the US in Europe is France because France has a, an elite class an incestuous set of relationships between the Treasury and Paribas in particular, which is every bit as tight as that on the east coast of the United States. So, you know, rather contrary to the American self-perception of a kind of, you know, diverse, open, meritocratic system, in fact, their closest analogue in Europe is what is undoubtedly the most tight-knit elite policy-making group that any of the oh, European countries boast. Well, that's interesting and also slightly depressing, obviously, because, as you say, you seem to be in some cases, you know, some ways, sort of making the case for a sort of self-protecting oligarchy. I mean, you, as, well, no, it's not making a case. It's comparing. You know, our first best fantasy, of course, is an empowered democratic sovereign able to calculate what will be in the interests of the collective whole and to arbitrate inequalities in such a way as to maximise efficiency and then subsequently compensate for those inequalities by an efficiently designed welfare system. That's what every economist has in their head. Yes. Right? that unfortunately is not an option. Uh, something that will be something perhaps closer to the New Deal or the fantasies yeah. that left-wingers and liberals projected onto the Obama administration early on. None of that comes to pass. So then your choice is between second and third and fourth bests. And if you have to choose between a well-organised cabal that knows its own interest and will push it through and is sensitive to the yeah. needs of Main Street as well, not oblivious to them. I'm not talking about some crude conspiracy here. Yeah. Um, that uh, may indeed be more efficient than the incredibly complex and deeply ineffective uh, collective action problem that we have in the Eurozone. And it's important to see in the Eurozone as well that I don't think there's no, there's no, some uh, great colleague of mine, Mark Blythe, speaks about the greatest bait and switch of history in which the banking crisis is swapped out for a sovereign debt crisis. And that's indeed <laughs> what emerges. That's what happens as a result 
of what I think of as a much more dysfunctional process. If that yes, had it's been... Not a, it's not a, nobody plotted it. No, it's not a well-organised, it's not a well-organised conjuring trick at all, because if it had been that, one would expect, surely, the European banks to emerge intact in prosperous commercial health, and, you know, all guns firing in all cylinders, and, of course, the opposite is the case. Yeah. That is what we see in the United States. So the question, really, in the Eurozone is... Assuming that power is generally monopolised by elites and assuming that business has a massively preponderant voice in economic policy as the baseline, the question is, as it were, okay, so how effective can this be and what will be the payoff for the rest of us? And in the US, you know, like it or lump it, and it's obviously not a very agreeable compromise to have to, to accept, um, it's clearly preferable to the, the thing that emerged in the Eurozone. Yeah, as a sort of parenthesis on that, you know, it's a sort of crude idea of it, that, you know, the whole mortgage crisis was the result of, you know, absolutely unfettered, you know, neoliberal financial, financialized capital and all that. And as you point out, you know, kind of in the background was a whole Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae thing, which was sort of hangover from the New Deal. You know, the sort of beginning of this business of selling on mortgages went through a sort of very almost socialized kind of well, this is true, but this is deep, deeply fraught political territory that we're entering, in, entering into here. And we, um, one has to be canny in navigating it. Well, so, you, do, you do say, you know, it's, they weren't to blame. Yes, exactly. I mean, this is, it, it is historically true. And one of the remarkable things you discover as a European moving to the United States, that the vast majority of mortgages there are mediated through public guarantees. And those institutions enjoy a federal backstop, effectively. And until the late 60s, they were actually part of the US government budget. And they were indeed legacies of the 1930s. Uh, and those are the institutions which, from the 70s onwards, pioneered securitization. And it was a short hop and skip from there from the part of American conservatives to concluding that this is a massive market distortion. And as we know, markets without distortions are perfect. And so nothing could possibly go wrong unless they had been distorted. And who was distorting it but a legacy of the New Deal? And how was that institution motivated? Well, from the 90s onwards, it was undeniably one of the great bastions of pork barrel politics of the Democratic Party in Washington. And it did indeed slowly in the end, finally, after many decades of not doing so, pursue an agenda that was more egalitarian and trying to offer mortgages to minority populations in the United States. So you put two and two together and arrive at the conclusion that a social welfare project driven from the New Deal is what was responsible, was responsible for the <laughs> And that just turns out not to be factually sustainable. I mean, it's a nice, neat theory. It just isn't correct in the, on the basis of the evidence. It is true that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac pioneered securitization. Um, but what then happened is they basically lost the securitization race to private providers who were in fact far more uh, expansive in providing loans to underserved minority communities in the United States than Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac ever had been, which didn't have a great track record in terms of, uh, of, of equal access to mortgages anyway. They were a ele key element in the racialized mortgage system of the US until recently. So. Um, they do historically, and in the genealogy, if you like, of the crisis, they're a key link, but they aren't the link which drives us into the territory of subprime, which is very important to recognise, and this is a sort of a historian's point, is not something that happens in the 90s, or it doesn't even happen in the early 2000s. It suddenly bursts in a huge sort of supernova of bad lending from about 2004 onwards. So the stuff that goes bad in 2007-8 was generated over the previous three to four yes, years. Yes, you describe it's more or less triple between 2004 yeah. and 2004. In that low-quality yeah. segment, and it's precisely the private providers going around the edges of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to get at that market. 
because people had discovered a whole bunch of accounting irregularities in the so-called GSEs, so the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they had actually been trimmed back. And this created the kind of market niche for this uh, private mortgage engine. Now, one of the sort of things that anybody who approaches a subject as complex as this and as, you know, multivalent and technical in certain of its respects, you know, and you're very upfront at the beginning, you say, in order to understand why this happened and what it means, you need to understand the nuts and bolts of, mm. you know, how these trades were done and what was underpinning them and where the finance was coming mm. from and what effect that had on, you know, the cost of money elsewhere and so forth. Um, how do you set about simplifying it? Is it possible to simplify it for a lay audience? I mean, you know, are you thinking, thinking for some of this that I can't explain because there's a democratic deficit somewhere mm. if it's not explainable to the person yes. on the street? You know, how do you, how do you go about it? Do you think some of these instruments are just too complicated? I don't think they are, no. Um, and I think... Um, you know, I have enormous respect and enthusiasm for the early work of people like Michael Lewis, who did a fantastic job of explaining one side of this problem. I mean, Big Short remains an absolute classic of the, of the genre. One of my proudest moments so far in the reception of the book is an email I received from a character in the Big Short who was played by a certain well-known actor. He emailed me to say, hey, I love your book, read it, let's have lunch. Like, oh, so reality right. comes alive and shakes your hand. It's, you know, the best thing that can happen to an author, but that's only one side of the story. And, you know, every effort that we make as historians, as, as writers uh, like Michael Lewis to explain a complex reality like this is a selective effort. And it has to be so as to get past the problem of just, uh, you know, attention being the absolutely scarcest commodity in the modern political yeah. world. And so I think of Crash as a contribution to the ongoing debate about the implications of this crisis for politics. And I think any reader of The Spectator or any of its equivalent publications will have no problem, I think, following it. I certainly laboured hard to make it intelligible. And I was specifically trying to expand the story by one extra element, which is not the side of the story which is driven from the mortgage side uh, and all of the complicated derivatives that are piled on that, but in fact the more elementary side, which is about the inherent fragility of banks. Because what banks do is to take short-term money of various types, and classically we think of somebody's savings deposit, which you yeah. put in and you're free to take out any time you like, and they turn them into long-term loans, which we socially think of as a greatly, you know, very important transmission from short-term commitments to long-term commitments, and banks sit in between. And that's, of course, incredibly risky for them to do that. And that's why we have them, that's why they make profit, and that's why they're also quite tightly regulated, and why, if your regulation goes wrong, and the profit motive takes over, you can end up with a very big risk. And what this book is about is, as it were, the other side of the crisis. Because the mortgage side of the crisis will explain how a bank slowly burns out. It will explain how households get into terrible trouble and negative equity and for years have to dig themselves out of debt. But that's the trigger. The prospect of that happening over the next couple of years is the trigger for what actually begins to happen from August 2007. What begins to happen from August 2007 is what happens next, which is a bank run. And it's not your old mum and pop's grant run, the sort of thing that we did see on the streets of England and Scotland with Northern Rock in the fall of yeah. 2007. This actual is a queues, modern yeah. bank, with actual queues of actual people. Behind the scenes, what had killed Northern Rock in the days before was a withdrawal of deposits by other banks. And those deposits are not the sort that we make, where we put it in and forget about it for months, if not years, decades. 
those ones are deposits you put in overnight you take all of your money out the next morning and then you put it all back in again seconds later and then the next day you repeat that operation and modern banks like Lehman like Northern Rock are based to an extraordinary extent on money which is 24 hours 48 hours three week three month type commitments Lehman was repoing and this is one way of doing this overnight close to 200 billion dollars a day days before it actually went broke and so the bank run that killed Lehman like the bank run that killed Northern Rock was simply investors saying you know what this morning I'm taking that money out and not putting it back in no disrespect a couple of weeks later if you're still there you can have the money back but this today you're not getting it and that is enough and that's the, 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 the to, 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 yeah. to kill even a very big institution even a very healthy institution which has made perfectly sensible investments which 20 years from now may pay off Many of the complicated derivatives, the CDSs, the CDOs, that were based on those mortgages, if you were able to hold them till maturity, 10, 20 years out, actually did just fine. They warranted their AAA ratings. They were safe. The problem is there was a panic going on in the markets, which meant that no one could afford to hold them because their financing for them was 24 hours. And the day after tomorrow, you weren't going to be able to finance them. So you're going to have to sell them now like everyone else. And then their value plunges regardless of what their value will be two years or three or four years from now. So that side of the story needed telling, the bank run side of the story. And that's, that's the, there's one really technical chapter in this book, and that chapter is doing the work of explaining that bank run side. Once you've got that in place, the whole drama of 2007-8 makes far more sense. This is the payoff rate of that move to the technical. Uh, and the wager is, across so many areas of modern life, that there is this increment of technical insight that you do have to develop to be able to make a reasoned judgment. It's not insurmountable. It's not impossible for educated, intelligent people to get there. And indeed for the broader public, if people made a better effort at explaining this stuff. You can do this with Mary Poppins. Uh, there's great sequences in the Disney version of Mary Poppins that do all the work you need to explain 2007-8, but it requires a bit of imagination and commitment to that project. So I'm absolutely not despairing uh, about that, but it does indeed require a willingness to go beyond the familiar narratives sometimes, because in the decision about which bit of the technical story to prioritise is an entire politics in interpreting the crisis. Yes. Do you prioritise the bad borrowing side, the boiler rooms, the Michael Lewis story of the seamy Florida real estate market? Or do you go to Lehman, do you go to the, you know, the very highbrow investment banks in Wall Street and look at their accounts and ask how are they doing their business? Two different narratives with two very different types of politics. And speaking of the politics, of course, your book you know, has a very close to final chapter on Donald Trump. And you, you describe him making his inaugural address. Yeah. You say, you know, Obama and various other people said, you know, if this, if this system continues to operate in the way it does, we risk a nativist backlash and we risk all this. And you say something Already in something 2005, to, 6, yeah. Yes, and you say something to the effect of, you know, um, if you were doing a cartoon version of what the nativist backlash would look like, you know... Here it is. <laughs> here it is. So, obviously, the, the explaining and the informed decisions haven't gone. One of the things that, you know, you, you said... This crisis is still going on. We're looking to the future a little bit. One of the stories of your book is about the what you call, I think, the mutually was it the mutually assured destruction or the balance um, of financial balance terror. of financial terror yeah, yeah. between China and the states. And there's very, very interesting, very lucid material on, you know, how and why China, you know, pegged its currency low to the dollar and yeah. what effect that had on the states yeah. and you know why yeah. this. You know, we go right back. Bretton Woods. Yes, know, indeed. And, and yeah. 
yet you've now got somebody who's zeroed in on that as a major economic mm. thing. No doubt he hasn't read your book yet. Um, but it can any good, do you think, I mean, do you think the balance, I suppose two questions are, one is, if Trump carries on with his trade war, what is the likely effect of that? And the second one, which is a sort of larger, less specific one, is simply, does the balance of mutually assured terror, of the balance of financial terror, continue to hold roughly safe between mm. China and the West, or mm. has it shifted in a way that's going to cause us trouble down the line? Well, it's shifted in a really odd way, right? So the balance of financial terror, which was really the abiding preoccupation of the American political class in the early 2000s, or especially the Democrats in opposition, because it was a great stick to beat the Bush administration with, yeah. consisted in the argument that Bush was waging these crazy wars in Iraq, costing a huge amount of money, and the Republicans were true to form, refusing to pay for them with taxes, so they cut taxes at the same time, so they ended up with a huge deficit. Uh, that creates excessive demand in the United States, that sucks in ex imports, uh, those come from exports from other countries, and who is the champion exporter but China, so China earns a lot of dollars, and it invests them in something, and what it invests them is in is the debt of the US government being <laughs> issued merrily by the Republicans to fight their wars without paying taxes. Yeah. Yes, These Robinson machines so go round and round. Yeah. And it obviously creates a huge sort of sense of tension and vulnerability on the part of the Americans because they're, well, they can already see as a kind of geopolitical antagonist. If plan A goes wrong, you know, plan A being to enroll them as a quote unquote responsible stakeholder. If that doesn't work out, then plan B is they're an antagonist and whoops, we end up, you know, owing them a trillion plus dollars. Well, that was the great thing. You, yeah. you, you say, you know, the, the crisis we were expecting yeah. was China dumping its dollars. So not, not surprisingly, you know. everyone's fixated on that. Everyone. But that turns out to be a crisis that's actually relatively easy to manage because the Chinese and the Americans can both see that this is a mutually assured destruction situation. And like the original mutually assured destruction, that actually proved manageable because you can both see the explosive consequences of acting one way or the other. Any move you make is aggressive. So they literally have geo-economic diplomacy. Hank Paulson's job when he came in as Treasury Secretary was to launch that. He was an old China hand. That's, his entire career yeah. was based on that. 70 times since Tiananmen yeah. Square. So they, I mean, you know, unapologetic about this too, right? So they're all in and that holds. And what they had not anticipated was the disastrous implosion of the purely private, totally unpolitical, geopolitically neutral space, supposedly in the North Atlantic, uh, which is basically kind of a NATO financial crisis that yeah. sucks both sides down. So the China crisis is the one that doesn't happen. But two things go on, nevertheless, right? China keeps on growing. This is the world historic shift of the late 20th century and early 21st century. Forget the balance between America and China. That's not the big story here. The big story is just China growing. China, you know, doubles global steel capacity in the space of 15 years. This is the entire history of the Industrial Revolution and everything since the Neolithic doubled in 15 years. So, you know, this is an epic shift, whatever the trade balance with the United States. And that is going to create more tensions of various types. The Thucydides trap, all the different permutations yeah. of that story. Don't have to be deterministic about it to recognise that there might be a bit of an issue here. Environmental issues as well on an absolutely epic scale, both inside and outside China. So that is a constant pulsing source of tension. And it isn't Trump that initiates that after all. It's the Obama administration with a pivot to Asia. It's under Obama that you know we get to 2014 with Japan, Abe as Japanese prime minister fronting off with Xi, two nationalists on either side going at it with the Americans watching the Japanese. Like, that tension is structural in the situation. Then add another element, which is the really unexpected bit, which is the reverse flow, which is that as China grows, and its businesses just need credit from wherever they can get it. 
The cheapest place in the world to get credit in the era of Ben Bernanke is in the dollar world because interest rates here are zero or even yeah. negative. So if you're an aspiring Chinese business person and you know China's economy is booming and the Chinese currency is only going one way, which is up against the dollar, that makes it even cheaper to borrow dollars. So the amazing thing that's happened is that as China has emerged as this titan economically, as its exports have continued to hum, nevertheless, its private sector has started to do what the European private sector did or the Thai private sector. Just typical capitalist business has become more and more dependent on cheap dollar funding. So we find ourselves in 2015 in a truly perverse situation where all the old parameters of the early 2000s are still true. China still has a huge trade surplus with the United States. It still has an absolutely epic foreign exchange reserve. And tensions with the United States now are getting more and more serious and real and quite open. And yet, to our horror, we discover that the Chinese private sector probably owed a trillion, trillion and a half in dollars. Now, if all of a sudden American interest rates are going to go up, and all of a sudden we begin to worry about the yuan maybe going down rather than up. And there's a bunch of Chinese billionaires rather worried about the neo-Maoist turn in Beijing and thinking it might be a good idea to move this stuff to Macau. We suddenly find ourselves confronted in the summer of 15 with the unthinkable, which is not a meltdown of the dollar as a result of Chinese selling dollars, but a meltdown of the Chinese currency as a result of Chinese people bailing out of China and into dollars and scrambling to pay back their private debts. So China has become absorbed in globalization. That old drama of the Cold War and that old drama of Bretton Woods has been overlaid by the new drama of an unstable financial globalization. That's our current predicament. And the really neuralgic question is, okay, how are the Americans going to respond to this? Because they've now got the Chinese by the short and curlies. Previously, it was the Chinese who had the Americans in a vice grip and the Larry Summers and the democratic elite were panicking. Now it's the Americans who've got the Chinese billionaires who owe dollars and need to get out quickly at their, you know, at their beck and call potentially. And how will America react? Now the State Department is doing the pivot. The Defense Department's planning for all sorts of crazy wars in East Asia. The Fed decides that if it were to act in an uncooperative way at this moment, the consequences for the American stock exchange and the American financial markets will be too catastrophic because America has too much invested in the China growth boom. China has become too big for America to allow it to fail. And so in the autumn of 2015, the Fed puts off an increase in interest rates, which would have been required by America's domestic economic conditions, probably at that moment, out of consideration for China. And also in part because the China crisis at that moment is so severe, there's no need to adjust American interest rates because the American economy is taking quite a severe hit from the downturn in China. Now, that's how complicated and counterintuitive this scenarios become. The, the fantasy of an American and Chinese standoff didn't come to pass in 08. The Chinese were quite cooperative. What did melt down was the global financial economy. Now the Chinese have grown ever more, the strategic threat's bigger, but the Chinese are more entangled with us. And the Fed is cooperating with the Chinese in managing their domestic economy whilst the Defense Department is building aircraft carriers. It's like that scene in the D.H. Lawrence yeah. book where the character tries to save another one from drowning and they both go but, under. And, and, and now add Trump into the equation. And now you've got an American president who says that trade balance, you know, how are we going to fix it? Not by domestically adjusting the amount the United States, on the contrary, will have a tax cut and fuel demand in the United States ever more, which can only increase Chinese imports. And the dollar will rise against the rest of the world's currencies, which can only increase imports and reduce American exports. Trump is tweeting this summer about the fall in the Shanghai Stock Exchange as a symptom, as a sign of American victory in the trade war. That's another way of politicizing this moment. 
two radically different designs for American policy in regard to China in a space of two years. One is a cooperative, we're in this together, whether we like it or not. There's antagonism, but we're entangled. So what do we do? We behave cooperatively. Not you know, necessarily announcing some great wedding, but we hang in this together. And the other, a kind of deliberate fostering of tension, which of course on the Chinese side can only challenge them to, to maximize their nationalism too, because they're not giving up on the China dream. They're not putting back from the ascent of China. I mean, that's like anyone who imagines is that is living in a different world. But I think someone, you know, in 2007, you know, Alan Greenspan said something to the effect of, you know, the great thing is that all these decisions we used to have to make, yeah. you know, have been taken out of our hands yeah. by globalisation. Um, was that the wrongest thing? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those quotes as a historian where you just find, I mean, you're just, you know, glad to be alive. Um, yeah, he's asked by a Swiss newspaper in the late summer of 2007 which way he's going to vote in the upcoming election. <laughs> and he says, you know, it really doesn't matter because the good, the, we have the good fortune that all of the important decisions in the world, except for national security, are taken by global markets. So, and this assumes, you know, that, that politics don't, the electoral politics don't matter. So partisan politics are not an issue. The global markets do govern the world. And you can sensibly separate security issues from the economy presumably on the assumption that the economy is benign or neutral with regard to security policy and that broadly speaking global economic growth is you know we have God on our side in that respect the West will win as it did in the 70s and 80s so you can separate the two fields of policy there's no no need for joined up geopolitics or geoeconomics like that and one can be the political thing that politicians do and presumably he means vote Republican because they're sound on defense and the rest is taken over by the economy. And yes, markets need governing. If they need governing, it's hugely contentious. No one really knows how to do it, especially in crisis situations. So it really matters who's in charge and people will have legitimate differences. And does it turn out that global growth is neutral with regard to security policy? Well, China is the standing rebuttal of that. But even more imminent in 2007-8 is, of course, the confrontation with Russia. And Russia isn't a heavy hitter on the scale of China, but the restored power of Putin's regime which after all needs no more than about 50,000 men who are actually capable of engaging in combat at relatively short notice to intimidate much of Europe. Um, that regime is built on global growth, largely China's global growth, right? Because it's driven by the demand for oil and gas, which yeah. restores Russia's power. So at that point, we recognize, I think, that A, the global growth machine is unstable and is crisis prone and will require discrete discretionary action. The thing that we wanted to avoid all the way back to the, you know, money, uh, the medium-term financial strategy of the early Thatcher period, where we thought we could hand this off to a set of rules and then it would take care of itself. That is blown apart by the financial crisis. We need to act. Geithner talks about himself as a soldier all the time. You know, crucial decisions will have to be made. And so politics, though Geithner would rather it's not the case, are going to matter a great deal. And even if we get it right, in the best case scenario, growth turns out to be anything other than neutral with regard to the global balance of power. That's not the world that we were in in the early 1990s when we knew, when we knew two things, that you know, markets would take care of themselves and whatever markets did was going to be good for Western power. Yeah, well, here is a very sobering corrective to it. Adam Tease, thank you very much. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Um, very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.